Hey, I guess since he was at our place when he got sick, I mean, uh, what else could I do? So, uh, but it's great to be here, great to be back. Um, yeah, I spent uh, almost uh, two years uh, with you transitioning and, and all, and uh, have great, great memories of uh, the, the trips along the QEW to the 427 to the 401 to Bayview, and uh, so, um, yeah, thanks for making the traffic easy for me uh, this morning. Um, over the past uh, month, several weeks, we've been talking a lot about Jesus, haven't we? Uh, you know, the birth of Christ and the birth of Jesus, and, and, and we've celebrated that. Um, but it occurs to me, do we really know this Jesus that we celebrate? You know, who, who is he, and, and, and how do we relate to him? And so as I had the opportunity to uh, speak to you this morning, those questions were going around in my head, and I thought that uh, perhaps it would be good just to kind of follow up from our Christmas uh, focus by looking at what the Apostle Paul has to say about Jesus in the book of Colossians, and so if you have your Bibles with you or uh, have your uh, Bible on your devices, I would encourage you to open them up to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to look at uh, some verses from Colossians chapter 1 and skip through to some in, in Colossians chapter 2, but just kind of uh, drill down a little bit this morning on, on who Jesus is and uh, how we relate to him. Uh, let's pray together. Father, as we give attention now to your word, we thank you for it. And these great songs that we've been singing about already have focused our attention on the, the, the person of Jesus and uh, who he is. And, and so I pray that as we look together this morning into this passage of scripture, that you will help us to capture anew, perhaps, or just renew some of our our already uh, ideas and thoughts and, 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 and appreciation for Jesus, and that we will leave this place having been confronted with the reality of this person who wants to come into our lives and change us and enable us to become all that you intend us to be. So help us to understand, Holy Spirit, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, have you been sports out yet? You know, it just seems that Christmas time and, and the time between Christmas and New Year's is just all about sports, isn't it? And, and unfortunately, our juniors didn't do as well as they have done in the past. And I don't know if you watch the bowl games or whatever, but it just seems that there's all kinds of sports activities happening uh, around this time of the year. Well, if you haven't had enough, let me put this on your radar, that in August, uh, the uh, games of the 31st Olympiad, or more commonly called the 2016 Summer Games, will be held in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Hopeful athletes will gather in Rio in August with one goal in mind, to stand on the podium and have one of three medals draped around their neck, either gold, bronze, or silver, the gold, of course, being the most coveted. The motto of the Summer Games this year is live your passion. Live your passion. Now, the passion for Canadian athletes to excel in athletic competition in the world stage uh, led to the development of what we know as own the podium. 
Originally established in uh, 2005 in anticipation of Canada hosting the 2010 Winter Games in Vancouver, the Own the Podium uh, program was started. The stated vision and mission of the initiative is for Canada to be a world leader in high-performance sport and to lead the development of Canadian sports to achieve sustainable podium performances at the Olympic and Paralympic Games. Now, buoyed by the success of the Vancouver Olympics, where Canadian athletes finished uh, a, a historic first overall in gold medal count and third in total medals, with 26 and, and, and the Paralympic athletes reaching their goal as well, the Own the Podium program continues to promote excellence in Canadian sport with specific emphasis on achieving excellence at summer and winter and Paralympic uh, Games. Now the goal of being crowned victorious strikes at the heart of every athlete, athletic competitor, whether on an amateur basis, recreational or professional level. And so Janie could never quite get it when, when on the rare occasion <laughs> I would come home after losing a squash match and she would ask me the question, did you have fun? And I would reply, I didn't win. But she would say again, but did you have fun? I could tell that she wouldn't, didn't quite get the fact that for me, the fun was in the winning. And so it may be, as the Apostle Paul wrote to the developing churches in Colossae and Laodicea from a prison cell, about a crucified Christ who was exposed to the infamy and public shame of death on a Roman cross. He was most passionate about dismissing any concept of failure and point to the compelling excellence of the victory Jesus has won over all evil and wickedness that lurk in the world and in our hearts. And so Paul declares... You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross." N.T. Wright has written, this is the great irony that stands at the heart of Colossians. The cross was not the defeat of Christ at the hands of the powers. It was the defeat of the powers at the hands, yes, the bleeding hands of Christ. Now, who are these powers? Well, they are the systems of influence, the philosophies of the world, the forces of darkness, the ideologies of governments and authorities, the structures of religion that oppose the wisdom and purposes of God. Paul wants his readers to understand what God, what God has achieved for them in Christ. He wants them to grab hold of the truth that all opposing forces that could defeat them have been conquered. The victory has been won. And so Paul writes... My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, 
in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What these Christians need to know about growing in wisdom and knowledge is the excellency of Christ. And so I want to say to us this morning that in God's arena, both visible and invisible, Jesus owns the podium. Now to show where the centrality and supremacy of Christ play out, Paul offers this poetic description of Jesus in the opening portion of his letter to the church at Colossae. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross." There are three essential affirmations that the apostle makes about Jesus in this passage of scripture that I'd like to unpack with you here this morning. Who is Jesus? Well, first, Paul identifies Jesus as the image of the invisible God. Now, this declaration about Jesus may seem a little strange to us. I mean, how can something invisible have an image? Well, to the Greek mind, an image was not considered something distinct from the object it represented. And so as the image of God, Jesus is an exact as well as visible representation of God displaying the very essence of God. By looking at Jesus, we discover who God is. Nobody has ever seen God. But in Jesus, he has come near to us and become one of us. I sat at a sidewalk cafe interacting with a friend who had recently told me that he had become an atheist. I had engaged in numerous dialogues with him about the person and reality of God, but he had decided that he simply couldn't accept the possibility that God existed. As we continued to talk, I I asked him where he stood on his understanding of Jesus. I knew that he had read through the Gospels and was familiar with the teachings of Jesus. He paused for a moment, looked at me, and said this, Jesus, now there's a problem. It was easy for him to dismiss God as an invisible entity. However, when confronted with the historic reality of the existence of Jesus, he wasn't so sure of his position. In a conversation that Jesus had with his 12 disciples, he told them that he was the way, the truth, the life, the only path to God. In fact, Jesus looked each of these 12 men in the eye and said, If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. The disciples were just a little bit puzzled by this statement of Jesus. And so one of them asked him to show them the Father because they could not recall ever having seen him. 
To this request, Jesus declared, to see me is to see the Father. So don't ask to see the Father. I have revealed him to you. Now Paul was intent on informing his readers that the more they get to know Jesus as a person, the more they get to know about him, the more they would come to an understanding of the one true God. What he has done for them and what it means to live in the full understanding of his power at work in their lives comes from an understanding and getting to know his son, Jesus. And so Paul, as he writes to this new church, wants them to understand that when they get to know Jesus, when they come to an understanding of who he is, they in essence are getting to know who God is. Well, the second affirmation about Jesus the apostle makes that set him on the podium of God's program of excellence for the world is captured by the declaration that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Now, the thing to keep in mind here is that Paul is thinking differently than birth order when he designated Jesus as the firstborn. Often, as we read this, we think in terms of birth order, don't we? A lot has been written and and talked about various uh, characteristics in in all of birth order. And so when we, we read about Jesus being the firstborn, our context would have us interpret what the apostle is saying as referencing a first child, as if Christ was the first being created or born. This is not the intention of Paul's description. The context of Paul's description references priority of time and being. Christ is distinct from all created things in time and supremacy. He outranks all things in creation. And the reason he does, as Paul goes on to note, is because it is in Christ and through Christ and for Christ that all things are created. Paul asserts Christ's primacy over creation, not just within creation. Now this supreme authority of Christ also extends to his ability to hold all things together. You know, God intended for creation to be ordered, not random. To be structured, not chaotic. He intended what the apostle described as things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all to be a part of the way in which the world worked. So what went wrong? While humanity rebelled against the authority and design of the creator and empowered the forces the forces to make war against the creator and his creation. However, this scenario did not catch God unprepared. Jesus is positioned to be the divine glue or spiritual gravity that holds creation together. The Jesus through whom the world was made is the same Jesus through whom the world has been redeemed. He occupies a -a one-of-a-kind position in the affairs of the world and in the lives of everyone who lives on planet Earth, whether or not they give credence to his authority. He is the one person who can bring stability to our often out-of-control world. He is the cohesive force penetrating and supporting all creation. 
Well, thirdly, Paul affirms Jesus as the head of the body, the church. In this capacity, Jesus is the source of the life of the church. The metaphor head designates him both as supreme over the church and as the one who gives life and direction to its function. The head not only directs and governs our bodies, it gives life and strength. When the head is overruled by disease or injury or maltreatment, the body suffers and dies. Similarly, when Christ's sovereignty over the church is diminished by self-serving endeavors, the church suffers and misses its divinely appointed purpose. Interestingly, the words head and beginning and firstborn are all derived from the same Hebrew word. Together they inform us that God's purposes for all creation come together in the life of local church congregations. On one occasion, when we were exploring a potential community for a church plant while I was serving as district superintendent, I asked a group of prospective members how they viewed the purpose of the church. One person in the group stated that the church existed to help him grow spiritually. And I could tell that we would have our work cut out for us if we were to proceed with a church start in this community. The church does not exist to meet the needs of its members or to ensure the survival of an institution. It exists to fulfill the redemptive purposes of God in, through, and for its head, Jesus. This means that God's blueprint for humanity and the restoration of the world is interwoven within the church functioning as redemptive community. It receives its impetus from Jesus as the first to rise from the dead and give hope for new life, as the one through whose cruel death on a cross we gain forgiveness of sin and are brought into peace and reconciliation with God. As the personalized expression of the fullness of God, Jesus brings God's power and life and godliness into our existence. This is the gospel that shapes the culture of the church and stimulates it through the supreme authority of the head. Now there's so much more that could be explored in the apostles' stirring declaration of the centrality and supremacy of Christ. It indeed sets the tone for all that follows in Paul's instruction in this book we know as the book of Colossians. However, in wrapping up here, let, let me make a few observations that I hope will encourage you to explore and experience the full measure of Christ revealed in this text. How are we to relate to this Jesus? Well, first, if Christ is the image of God and all God's fullness dwells in him, it's by looking at Jesus that we discover who God is. My atheist friend unsuspectingly got caught by this level of divine disclosure. Jesus complicated his conclusion about the existence of God. The truth accompanying this declaration about Jesus is that the more we look at him, the more we discover who God truly is. We see the depth of God's self-giving love and his wholehearted commitment to our well-being. 
When we realize this, God becomes more approachable and trustworthy. We are prompted to respond to him with love and gratitude. Then, if in Jesus all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, he has supremacy over all powers. He is able to dispose of any threat they may present to our relationship with him. Through his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, he has broken the backs of all contrarians to his intended designs. It is with this in mind that Paul wrote to the church in Rome, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And next, although it is God's express design to reconcile all creation to himself through Christ, this does not mean that the natural world around us is defined by evil and has no value. The world in which we live is the masterpiece of Jesus. And so the next time the beauty of a sunset takes your breath away, or the rising peak of a snow-covered mountain causes you to gaze in wonder, or the peaceful gurgle of a bubbling stream soothes your anxious mind. It's all because of Jesus. True, there is a lot of pain and ugliness and devalued real estate in the world, but that occurred as a result of humanity failing to fulfill its role of stewarding God's creation. The redeeming factor in all of this is that the same Jesus who created the world, who loves the world, is rescuing the world and calls us to follow him as rescued rescuers. A couple of years ago, our, uh, my wife was visiting our daughter again out in, in uh, Edmonton. I talked a little bit about this last week. We try to get out uh, two or three times a year because it's difficult for them to come our way. Anyway, she was visiting with them. It was around this same time of the year, maybe a little earlier in, uh, in December or November when, when she was there. And on one particular morning, uh, when they needed to go out, the, the day was overcast and, and blustery winds and precipitation in the form of ice pellets was the weather picture for that day. And so they wanted to go out and as they rushed out to the van, they strapped four-year-old Joshy in the car seat and then made haste to get into the vehicle themselves. As Michelle and Janie settled down in their seats, one of them said, what a yucky day. This comment brought a stern rebuke from Josh sitting in the back seat. It's not yucky, he said. This is God's creation, and it's not yucky. We need one of them in the back seats of all of our cars, don't we? In conclusion, it needs to be said that although Christ is supreme over all creation, his supremacy is most visible in the church. The task of the church is to get on with implementing the life and mission of its head. So what does that look like? Well, let me suggest this. Simply put, the church is to become the visible expression of Jesus. 
Every time we gather for worship, we are saying, he is Lord and we are not. When we pray for the offering, we are admitting that the world and everything in it belongs to him. When we unite our hearts in mutual affection, we are acknowledging that love springs from being loved by him first. When we overcome lust and greed and hatred, we show that Jesus has defeated the powers of darkness that enslave and crush the human spirit. When we display the liberating impact of the cross in our marriages, our homes, and our bank accounts, we resonate out to our friends, our neighborhoods, our places of employment, our campuses, our city, that God is God and we are his people. When we get on with the task of living out our lives from the perspective that Jesus owns the podium, we are able at last to address some of the problems in the church and the world that loom so large and seem so unresolvable. And when we come to the sacred table and eat and drink the visible reminders of Christ's sacrificial death on our behalf, we are practicing the presence of Christ being very much alive in us and shaping us to reflect the image of self-sacrificing love. If Jesus is anything, he is the glory of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus summons us to live in the centrality of this relationship. So let's get on with implementing his generous offer in our everyday experience. Let's live out our passion for the Christ. Let's pray. And so, Father, as we've looked into this, this passage of Scripture and this there's just a lot there, and, 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 and I'll admit, I don't get my head around all of it, and maybe some here don't as well. But what it does, paint, the picture it does paint for us is Jesus being the centrality of the hope for our world and for our lives. And so somehow I pray that you will help us to grasp that understanding and live in the reality of the victorious presence of Jesus being alive and well in each of us and living his life in and through us in the spheres of influence that you place us in. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.